Hey, Risto here with George Mason University. Uh, today we have a special treat for you. Uh, we are putting up a recent webinar that was hosted by the American Educational Research Association's SIG 93, which is our special interest group for research and teaching in physical education. Um, and the guest on the webinar was Peter Hasty. Um, you can view the webinar if you want online. We wanted to put this up here to uh, reach a wider audience. It was a really good conversation about the international perspectives in physical education from a scholar that has truly uh, traveled the globe in research. So hopefully you'll uh, enjoy this webinar as uh, much as we did. So with that, uh, without further ado, um, I'm going to turn it over to Professor Peter Hasty, uh, the world traveler who will share his global perspective on physical education research, practice, and policy. All right, thanks everybody. Um, I'd just like to start with that this is a lens, so it's my perspective. Folks from other countries might say, well, hang on a second, that really doesn't represent us that well and I'm more than willing to discuss that as we develop um, not particularly right now but at, a, at another time um, if you look at the diagram that you can see I'll set you an initial little challenge to identify the two icons of the places that I have not been uh, most of my travel it's been of a mix you know I've done a lot of places for project work but you know while you're there you get the opportunity to do and see other things but i've also done a lot of travel just for fun so we'll go through the sequence of the outline of what i want to take you through i think it's worthwhile especially given that this audience is not particularly senior to talk to you about what led me to the united states and to auburn in particular and what it was like to do research in, quote, I guess, the old days, which would be probably prior 1995, because those of you that are around then, the biggest slogan that hit the world in 1995 was, you got mail. Uh, it was this big thing that you were very excited when, you, when it popped up that you actually had a message. Nowadays, it's more like, oh, another thing I have to do and another thing I have to answer. From there, we'll talk about how different countries vary in their physical education offerings and we'll talk about offerings in terms of time curriculum who teaches physical education and even indeed the level of schooling because that differs and the way that physical education conceptualizes varies across those countries then we'll spend some time on this is probably where my lens comes into place it seems to be that if you land in a particular country or read about research coming from a particular country, there tends to be themes of those countries and ways about going about business that seem specific to that location. And as we get to that, it'll make more sense. But it's got to do with what researchers in different countries tend to coagulate around and the work that they do and how they produce it. So in some places it's school and performance-based researchers are in schools doing work with teachers and with students. And then in other countries, there seems to be a significantly less level of engagement in schools. So we'll, we'll have a look at that. And again, that's the one that's probably the, maybe not the most contentious, but perhaps lacking a little bit of accuracy, but that's okay too. Then we want to talk about how getting into schools varies. So if you're interested in doing work in school settings, what it's like. Now, that variability, even within the one country or within the one state, varies by district or by location. Um, but we'll I'll also discuss a little bit in that section about how building relationships seems to be super critical in terms of situations where you want to do research with teachers and with young people in school settings. And then the last bit I'll talk about is being an international collaborator because 
part of my vita certainly has been done with people from a number of different countries, always to the betterment of those. Um, interestingly, I think we've got three ARA or JTPE SIG papers of the year, and two or three of those have been from international research. So that's really quite exciting. So we have to acknowledge that there's some really smart people outside the boundaries of our own universities and at least outside the United States. Uh, international conferences are a great place to meet those people in person. And depending on the project and your involvement with it, your role can vary quite significantly from place to place and time to time. And even with the same collaboration team over a set of repeated experiences. So that's where I want to go from beginning to end. So we might as well start back at the beginning. There's this handsome fellow who graduated in 1990 with my PhD. Um, it should be said that in the Australian PhD, and this is still the same situation today, that there's no committees, there's no coursework, it's just the research. So typically it's a three to four year process where you follow a topic. If you need to learn about something like one of my chapters involved structural equations modeling, I had to go and find someone to teach me how to do it. So there was a fellow in the department of education at that stage who was an expert in it. I went and visited him on and off over a series of weeks and we learned protocols and put it together. What that means is that you then have to have an extraordinarily good advisor because there's no committee. It's just you and the advisor um, akin to the you know, committee chair here. But what it does allow you to do is to produce a number of documents that should be pretty much ready for publication either before submission of the thesis itself, which is what the dissertation is called in non-North American contexts, um, and so when it's examined externally, I'll, I'll explain that a little bit. When you submit your degree, it's not like there's a defence where you've got maybe one outside reader and a committee of people from your university and your unit and your committee who makes the judgment. Mine was submitted in February and I got my results in June. So I was waiting for a good time, you know, four or five months before there was any feedback about what it was and it was the choices are typically accept accept and fixes and we don't want to see it again or accept it's like a basically a massive publication so with me having three of those studies published before the dissertation was submitted was quite helpful because it's unlikely that an examiner and i had one from germany one from the united states and one from us from externally the university in australia it's unlikely that they're going to say, well, you know, we want you to change this particular chapter. So it's a really good grounding in research. What it doesn't do is you don't get the benefits of the coursework, which in doctoral studies in the United States, I think is a fantastic opportunity. So if you wanted me to cast the stone over education across the world, I think that undergraduate education in the non-US setting UK, Spain, France, Australia, New Zealand is way superior to the US model, but I think graduate education in the United States certainly would be the, the choice that we take. Now, of course, there's bigger numbers of people in the US so that can manage. So in 1990, I was awarded with a degree, I already had some publications and I took a job in Australia at that time. So what was the landscape for collaboration like then? Well, there was no internet, there was no web, so no Google Scholar, no looking up stuff that you needed. Uh, it was all books and journals. Our university library had a specialist library for undergraduate studies because there was nothing online. Students couldn't just go and look for articles. Any article was reproduced a number of times and you had to sign it, even papers. Uh, there was no web, there was no email, so you couldn't contact anybody electronically and ask for advice by consequence there was no attachments like you couldn't send a paper to someone and say hey could you read over this everything was by mail so journal submissions was all paper 
typed it out just before word processes, made three copies, sent it off, and then you'd get a card from the editor saying, like, we've received your paper and it's gone out for review. And sometimes you didn't receive that card. So after about a month and a half, you'd send them another letter saying, uh, excuse me, did you get this paper that I submitted? Then the review process was the same. You get the reviews in the mail, you do them and you go all over the whole process again. So it took way longer um, to get anything done. Collaboration was almost limited to people who were on site with you. So if you were working in a field where there wasn't anyone else, and that's what happened. So interestingly enough, when I got to Auburn, one of the first comments that was made on my third year review was, um, you might want to have a few more papers that are not single authored and just you, which is a little bit different from many when it's typically, well, you might want to have a few more first authors. So no Skype, no WhatsApp, no Zoom like we're using today. So you couldn't just jump online, talk to somebody. So what happened? Early morning calls, Australia's 15 hours ahead of the United States. So I recall very specifically waking up one morning at 2 a.m. to call Steve Silverman to ask him some questions about a particular study he did in regard to methodology. That was manageable. I mean, even though you had to get up at two o'clock a few days before to see if you could maybe catch them in their office to check up with them that they were actually available. The big challenge though was the conference papers because again, it was all paper. There was no electronic journals. So if JTP, which started in 1983, so it was around, if they had a call for a special edition or uh, AFID as they were then had a mini conference or even their national conference, you'd hear about it after the due date because it would have to surface mail to, the, to Australia from the US, get received by the library, catalogued, put on the stacks, then you'd find it. Oh, there's a special issue on physical literacy. Well, it's due, sorry, it's over. And that happened time and time again. The other thing that was really interesting was how we did citation searches. I'd meet with the designated person for human movement studies. We'd select all the keywords for a topic. He'd create little index cards, feed them manually into computer, and then 24 hours later, you'd go and look at the printout. Then you'd decide what you had. Then of course was the issue of whether you had those journals in your library. So what was the solution? Move to where the action is. People said, why, why are you going to the US? And I said, well, you can't go to Texas for the weekend for a conference, right? And, and everything's happening over there and that's where the opportunities were. So in 1994, I landed on the shores at Auburn. Um, the job came about by being at an AFID conference. So that was in um, March in Washington. They had a big job fair there, which they tend not to do anymore, which is a real shame met someone, did a visit, and hey presto, I've been here ever since. So I, I, you know, I think that's something that some people might want to appreciate that really when you understand how much multi-author work there is done these days that it wasn't always that simple. Now in terms of this international variability in physical education, requirements and opportunities for physical education vary across the world. Now, they vary in the US because in the United States, the individual states, and to an extent, individual school districts take control and ownership of the way physical education is conducted, particularly with regard to staffing and particularly with regard to curriculum. So even in Alabama, based on school district support, we've got some more wealthy school districts that have all sorts of available resources and technology for physical education and others that are extremely poorly funded in terms of equipment, teachers, they don't have aids, etc. And that goes across the country. In Queensland, where I'm from, school staffing, for example, is based exclusively on school numbers. So if you have X number of students, you get Y number of dollars. If you have two X students, you get two Y dollars. Now how the principal spends it is up to him or her. Staffing's all designated by the state. When we graduated, we got sent to a specific school. We didn't have to find our own jobs. You got allocated, and that's meant to make sure that there's a balance between experienced and novice teachers across different subject areas. 
Um, and so the other thing in terms of the opportunities for physical education, nearly every country has elementary and secondary level of physical education. And if you look at bullet three, the young children across the world, elementary or primary school children, tend to be those who are least likely to receive instruction from specialists. Although again, in Australia and the US, there's considerable variability here. But in the main, across the world, most young people tend to have their physical education instruction from their classroom teachers. It's only when you reach high school. Now, if you go back to bullet one and you look at this idea of opportunities, there's two countries, the United States and China, that I've had dealings with. It may occur in other places, but I don't believe that it does, that has physical education course opportunities for students who are not majors in physical education. So the basic instruction program, as it's called typically in the United States, offers courses in tennis, racquetball, water aerobics, almost endless opportunities for students from forestry, engineering, business, etc. That happens in China, where actually in China, it's compulsory for all undergraduate students to take at least one year, although most universities will require it twice. Um, they're the only other places. Now in the US, some universities have it as a requirement. Most don't. Uh, some have it for very different degrees of credit. What differs also particularly across nations is the control of the curriculum. Now, in many countries like the UK and Australia, for example, there are national curricula in physical education from grades typically one to 10, and then a separate curriculum, which is more state-based, which are used by students or followed by students and teachers for university entrance. That doesn't exist in the United States. Shape America has national standards and individual states have courses of study, but in essence, they're toothless tigers. I don't know, except for the South Carolina project, which was funded to the tune of about $350,000 a year and eventually sort of disappeared when the state legislature got a little bit short of funds, had a formal accountability system in, in terms specifically of student outcomes. But the best document, if any of you are interested in how these national curricula vary and the times are the papers and the books by Ken Hardman from the UK who've done these international surveys. Uh, one of the things that tends to have the biggest impact on research is these length of units. Uh, and as a, as a really good example of that, uh, we had a study that was done by researchers from Portugal, Spain and myself, where the study was conceived of in Spain. It grew up there, it had input from me, but we did it in Portugal using Portuguese pre-service teachers and Portuguese faculty because the Spanish teachers couldn't move away from this restriction that they perceived they had at least, that they couldn't do a unit of 20 days or which is what we wanted. Um, assessments vary. In the United States, you can basically assess on whatever you want, again, because there's no level of accountability. Uh, in very few countries at the high school level and certainly at the secondary senior level, I mean, you'd be laughed out of the room if you said you assessed on attendance, participation, effort, etc. As an example from Australia, the Victorian curriculum for senior schooling has zero assessment on motor skill performance. It's a completely theoretical assessed course. Now, students will do activities like basketball or field hockey or Australian rules football, but their performance in them doesn't count for anything. Um, in other states, it does, and, and how that's assessed. And the accountability for student performance and grading varies significantly. So it's probably the case where much of the rest of the world is closer together than what you would find in the United States. Um, it's one of the things that anybody that's grown up outside of the US that's moved here to teach, you know, cries for and moans of the level of what happens in high schools here. When we've seen either as teachers or as researchers or even 
passed about 1980 as students in schools about the, the high quality of teaching and instruction that takes place and the high level of sophistication and output that these young people are expected to produce in the name of the subject. So I've talked about bullet three about who teaches. Again, the specialist teachers tend to be limited um, to high schools, although in Alabama, for example, it's all specialist teachers. Uh, in Queensland, Australia, where I'm from, typically all primary school physical education is taught by specialist teachers as well, but you go to other states like our neighbour, New South Wales, where that's not the case at all. The other thing that's interesting is what the outcomes varies. Now, I've mentioned that a little bit. Um, some countries, the focus is on fitness, pure and simple and 100%. So you can see, I don't know how clear it is on your screens, but a little picture of some Russian youngsters out there in a soccer lesson. It was when we took this photo, it was minus 20, minus 20 C. Um, we've got another photo where all the boys have got their hands in their pockets because they're doing a soccer class and it had just snowed. Uh, but in Russia, 100% of the students' grade is based on their fitness scores. It's not just health-related fitness, it's fitness altogether. Um, just for your amusement, one of those tests on the fitness test protocol is throwing the hand grenade. Um, for university entrance into a physical education bachelor's degree, the cutoff's 50 metres for boys. Uh, other countries, the focus is much more on skill performance. Right? how well students can perform activities. Other countries, as I've given you the example from the Australians, uh, we're focusing more on understanding and appreciation, social justice issues, the place of movement, sport and physical activity in society. Um, the British system tends to be a big focus on the sport sciences and the application of them to sport and movement. Uh, and of course, those are what's what are assessed and then in the United States and it seems to be unique to the US there's this outcome focus like what do we want young people to achieve in physical education is high levels of physical activity and so there's been numerous grants of millions of dollars available for intervention programs to produce curriculum and to train teachers with the specific dependent measure of physical activity now, nowhere else in the world do we see that. Um, physical activity is meant to be part of what happens when you do physical education, but it's not the be all and end all or even the sine qua non of what we're trying to do. To develop understanding and to develop appreciation and to develop skill performance, we have to practice. Sometimes that means demonstration, sometimes it means discussing, sometimes it means analyzing gameplay, watching video, all of those things which are seen to take away from physical activity, yet it's so preciously valued here in the US. And I, my tenet is, one, it's easier to achieve, right? It's a very easy thing to measure. Kathy Ennis told me one time before she sadly left us that it is the low-hanging fruit. It's much easier to measure and, and derive programs and curricula and outcomes that promote MVPA than it is to promote understanding or skillfulness. Uh, but it's also been reinforced by where the, the federal dollars have gone. Um, and so there's, if you follow any of the discourse on PE Central, for example, on Facebook, uh, there's all sorts of discussions and often sadly at a very surface level about this whole idea of you know getting kids active being the, the ultimate goal and that runs so counter to my MO and my sort of DNA as a physical educator. So what do we learn about this international activity? What's the message? One is know your context. If you're going to read papers or engage in research in these far offshores, I'm talking to the any any audience here if you're in the UK or as, as of tomorrow, which is not in Europe anymore, but doing collaborative work even between Ireland and, and um, Scotland, for example, who are close neighbours and friends, has an implication for what goes on. Um, again, knowing the context was really important for me in Spain and Portugal when I did considerable research 
very kindly funded by the universities over there in terms of housing me and making me feel really welcome. So before you travel across places, you need to know what's happening in those places. The second one, which is kind of cool, is because of this absolutely no accountability, no national curriculum, you can assess however you want. In the US, from a research perspective, and actually in from a teaching perspective, you can do almost anything. And so what we have from the United States are these really exciting, crazy, way out there, very sophisticated research projects that aren't possible in most other countries. Uh, any of the sport education of work I've done, if it hasn't been in Portugal or China or the US, um, it's almost impossible because no one's going to allocate you that amount of curriculum time. And I can do it in Alabama because we have daily PE. So in one month, you can do a 20 lesson unit and, and get really good data. But you only have to find something that's a little out there and you, you're not restricted. That's basically what I'm saying. Um, trying to do any sport education work in, in England, for example, is not impossible because they'll say, oh, we, we've only got six lessons for this particular topic. Um, there's ways around that, but it's particularly complex. And again, to use the example, the Spanish study, which was designed, analysed, written, conceived, etc., from Spain, we did in Portugal because we found schools who were willing to allow us the time to do it. Uh, and interestingly enough, that paper did win an AERA Paper of the Year Award. So again, not only does physical education vary in terms of its outcome measures, curriculum, restrictions on teachers, etc. From my view, and this is where my focus comes in, probably a little bit more blinded, perhaps, and it's this is this slide's probably the most open for debate, is this idea that I I think there are trends across what happens in different countries in terms of research. So if you landed on the shores of Australia and, and you were interested in doing um, research on teaching in schools, let's say research on physical education, teaching and learning, there's less than three people who do that there. Now, I will say this at the beginning, all of the studies that come out of Australia are high quality. Right? There's some very high quality thinkers in, in all sorts of different domains right some of our really great curriculum theory folks are located in australia so a lot of their research is on curriculum studies with these state-based and national curriculums it makes sense to study them in terms of you know are they achieving the outcomes what's the response what's the policy issues related to them and so you'll see more socio-cultural sociological topics like diversity Lots of research on policy studies. I mean, Dawn Penny has to be one of the world leaders in, in studying physical education policy, but that doesn't require them necessarily to go into schools. Likewise, in England, again, we have key um, personnel who are very well regarded internationally in terms of gender studies, identity studies, policy, because the UK is a very small country in terms of area with quite large population density um, there's been some really interesting studies on students of different ethnicities perceptions and sometimes engagement but not as much you know their beliefs and feelings about the importance and the role and their inclusion in physical education um, the one that's that jumps off the screen here maybe not for you but is different from that is there significant research on school sport, right? The United Kingdom and England in particular weren't particularly highly ranked on the international scale of sport performance prior to them getting the bid for the Olympics. But once they did in 2006, um, money flowed in from the federal government um, extensively into school sport. It was seen as the site to develop um, promising performers and so the research on talent ID uh, spurned itself in the English schools and so there's been a whole spin-off of research now that's not 
physical education per se, because there's now big school sports programs that are not aligned with physical education, but I thought it was worthwhile putting it in there. Um, the Nordic countries, particularly the Swedes and the Norwegians perhaps, spend a lot of time and discussion on literacy and policy. If you read the articles from China, not so much the ones that are written in English that come out of China, but the ones that are in Chinese, most of that research is on promoting student health outcomes. So are there physical education classes leading to improvements in health and, and wellness? Um, the Eastern European countries, the journals from Croatia, which is a very solid journal, and the Russian journals are all performance outcomes. When we did our sport education research in Russia, the question from the university folks there was, well, how do you know that this is better than what we're doing now? Right? They wanted us to demonstrate and measure performance. They weren't interested in student enjoyment. They weren't interested in any motivational aspects. Um, they weren't interested, sorry, in whether this promoted out of school involvement. It was, does this produce a better badminton player this way or a soccer player? Or in particular, as I said, their curriculums measurements 100% on fitness. Do children perform better on fitness tests as a result of doing this? Going to the US, which is the most um, diverse in terms of topics you just have to sort of scan issues of jtpe is the bellwether journal or rqs which is a strong section in physical education pedagogy i'm going to go out on a limb here and say that over time and even now there seems to be three main topics that get a lot of voice one is physical activity interventions secondly we have a lot of research on the psychological aspects of physical education where researchers will go into a school or multiple schools or multiple classrooms in multiple schools, big data sets, three, 400 students, administer a test grounded in theory, produce a watertight paper, um, produce recommendations for practice. But where I have a problem with this is they never watch a single lesson. Right. There's, there's no data at all in any of these studies about what's happening in physical education. And it's pretty much the same with the strong uh, trend now in socialisation research. Right. What's the, the occupational and formative socialising factors that influence teacher practice and decision making, etc. So if I had to, if I was held to the fire and said, what seems to be the things that get the most uh, published work in the United States, it would be those three. So the message, if you look across all of those, is that there isn't much in-school intervention work going on anywhere. Now, the field of sport pedagogy, JTP started in 1983, the first journal that was exclusively allocated in an English language, I will say that, to physical education research, was all about motor competence. There was experimental teaching units. There was a lot of process product studies. You know, if we did this particular unit of work, did it result in different outcomes for students versus that particular work? Um, Larry Locke's greatest contribution, I think, it's a very strong term because he was one of our most magnificent leaders ever, said, get into the gym and look what's going on. And so the Anderson Project from Columbia University in the 80s was titled very succinctly and lots of PhDs that came out of that is what's happening in the gym. Uh, what are teachers doing? What are young people doing? But if you look at those topics listed here, there really isn't a lot of in-school intervention. In Australia, there's probably one or two people. In the UK, there's probably one or two people. Now, there is a little outlier and I'll put it up and I'll give props to the folks from the Iberian Peninsula, Spain and the Portuguese they do do a lot of work with young people in schools. Um, and that's my real interest. And so, of course, a lot of my work has been done offshore with, with those folks. They're good scientists, they're good researchers, and they're really nice people to work with. 
getting access to school also varies as you go across the world. In some places, you can walk in the front door and start something tomorrow. In other places, it's almost like an act of Congress or it has to be the signature of the president before you can even step foot into a classroom. So the government agencies have policies that potentially restrict or, or allow, I guess, access to students, especially talking to them, interviewing them, filming them, and doing studies in schools. So these government agencies, whether they be federal in, again, the smaller countries, local in some places, um, even school-based in others, present these barriers to getting in and doing stuff with young people and with teachers. So there could be school policies, right? Different schools will allow you to video, some won't. Uh, many won't, indeed. Uh, some will allow you to video some students, but not others. Um, likewise, there's a high level of paperwork, um, background and forms and, and red tape, which I would call it for you to conduct these studies. And as a little side note, it's got so crazy in some places now where, for example, I was talking to my sister in Australia, who's just retired as a school counsellor. When they did field trips, they don't take the students from the school. They say, right, we'll meet you at point X, which might be the museum. It might be an opera house. It might be a government department. All of this, we'll meet you there and then we'll do the field trip there and then we'll let you go. So that avoids the transport, the litigation and all of those issues. And it seems to be that the more litigious the countries that there's this difficulty here and litigious might be the best not be the best word I was thinking of what it should be, but it's probably something to do with child protection, which is certainly legitimate, but it does create a lot of barriers. Now, it could be, if you looked at the previous slide, a relationship between how difficult it is to get into schools with the people doing the research focus. Now, that's a chicken and egg. Are these people not in schools because of their focus? or are they not in schools and hence have taken a different focus because it's really difficult to get into schools? That one, I don't think there's a, a clear-cut answer. So it's a double-edged sword. If, if these folks don't have an instructional focus in their research, then they're not gonna go into schools anyway. And so this whole idea of getting access is not problematic at all. There's other places where the curricular restrictions seem to present possibilities or more case restrictions. So in school situations where they have a very strongly mandated curriculum and you ask them if you'd want to do a unit on CrossFit, well, no, no, we can't do that. That's not in our curriculum. Um, do you want to do something in dance? No, that would have to go to the dance teachers. Or no, we can't give you 15 lessons. We can give you four. And so those constraints are with us as well. Now, on the other hand, there's a number of places where there's really strong active partnerships between researchers and teachers, and they tend to be non-English speaking, non-Western European, non-North American, nor Australian or Oceanic. So Spain and Portugal, there's lots of partnerships between universities and schools, they have active researchers, and their teacher education programs place students in schools significantly more than these other countries. Turkey's another one, really easy to get into. China, Japan and Korea, although I haven't been involved with China and Korea, Phil Ward from the Ohio State University certainly has a great success in particularly those last three countries of not having to go through lots and lots of paperwork and policy decisions to get in schools. And so, rightly, they do work in those places and generate lots and lots of data. It does help if you can actually teach in a school. So the first place is making a relationship with the school itself. You prove yourself as a teacher first, and then you get a lot more street credibility to go in there and do interventions. That's a little side note that I find quite interesting. So the message is developing relationships matters. Relationships with the faculty in other universities. So going and working with them on their projects, 
um, working with people in schools, the schools that you want to move into and do them as sites of study. Again, all of this is moot if you're doing policy study or curriculum studies. So what does it mean to be a collaborator? And this is our last slide because it'll give us time for some questions. Your role as a collaborator, let's say you're working with people from another country. I'll, I'll go beyond another institution in your own country, but international research. Your role can vary considerably and it often depends on what you bring to the table for a particular study. So the roles that I'm going to present, I've taken in various places at various times, but they can include you designing the research question. So we've initiated, myself and doctoral students, have initiated studies, for example, what's it like to do sport education in Russia? Never been done. We know that it works in the Australian context, in the British context, in Australia and in other places, but the Russian physical education program is so different. So we then initiated the study with the university over there that we had a relationship with. They found the schools, we went and worked with the teachers and it took us two years to get in, but we did. And we had really interesting work. Now, if the research question comes from the native country, AKA the track and field sport education study from Spain, uh, your role then changes. You're not the person that generates the question, but who participates in a different way. In that particular case, as one as an example, my role was in helping design the study. What methodology, what, uh, how would we set up the actual experimental design? What instruments would we use? What level of analysis would we use? Um, and so that was a collaborative effort, knowing what was possible. But in that case, the research question was presented by the local folks. I went to Spain and we actually went to Portugal. Uh, Antonio will have a nice story about our return from Portugal, but he's probably going to keep that private. Later, um, you can provide access to a wider literature base, for example, journals and reports that are available in English or in journals that your university will have that international journals are not available in international universities. I get asked for papers a lot on ResearchGate. Can you send me this one? Can you send me that one? Because they don't have it. Um, and so that's another way of being a collaborator, as is helping in the interpretation of the results and the writing of the actual paper. Now, the writing of the paper can be right at the end where it's pretty much all done, although this is done during. So that's becoming an English first language author so that when the paper is submitted to an English first or an English language journal, it reads like a native speaker wrote it. So there's some papers where that's almost been my exclusive role, although in other cases it's typically been across the whole pathway. The key message in all of this is to see yourself as an asset, not a missionary. Uh, your, your job as an international researcher is not to control the discourse, it's not to control the research process. Even when you're designing the question, you have to go back to an earlier slide about, okay, what's the context, what's possible here? And the only way that you truly know that is to deal very closely with your local folks. So with that being said, let's go. I mean, hopefully I've excited a few people about moving beyond their own boundaries and exploring opportunities to work with other people. Um, there are great collaborators in other countries that would be more than willing to be involved in, in projects or more than willing for you to be involved in their projects. You can be a great resource to them in terms of, again, language, knowing the sorts of papers and the way to go about business to get published. Um, we, I have a contract with a Chinese university right now with that specific mission. But these other places can open up a whole new world of essential research sites for you, particularly, okay, this works here, this works in the US. We think it's something that's pretty um, global, but we don't have any data on it. So with that being said, I'd like to thank you for your time and your listening. 
And I'll turn it over to Senlen now about some reminders. I think if any of you have written notes for questions, you can send them to Erin. Um, she has a class in 10 minutes. So after Senlen's done his reminders, we might have time for some questions, but given that our audience is not super expansive in the, on the live case, that would be something that would take place later. So I'm off and I'm handing over to the bosses. I think we do have a couple of questions, um, Peter. So thank you very much um, for your presentation. Uh, Risto, do you wanna go? Okay, um, I will read Risto's questions or Risto, you can turn on your mic, just make sure you uh, turn it off when you're done. Do you wanna ask them? Uh, sure. Uh, thank you very much, Peter. Uh, that was an awesome webinar. I learned a lot and um, truly enjoyed myself listening to your path. Um, so my first question, so I'll, I'll, I'll read the questions and you can answer whatever you have time for or interest. So okay. number one, what is the one major lesson that you think U.S. researchers should learn from their international peers? Um, the second one is more about the funding um, and how do you find funding to actually get to these other countries. Um, and yeah, so I'll leave it at that and see if anybody else has questions as well. Okay, well, I'll start with number two. Um, it's pretty much my money, uh, except for the Chinese situation. I've got a, um, a contract with them that lasts three years and it pays about... I think um, about $25,000 and they cover costs in and out. The, the two months in Spain was, I had a very nice um, donation of 2,000 euros a month, which paid for accommodation and board. When I go to Portugal, they, they pay for my accommodation. I actually stay in student dorms, but there's no money takes place. Um, I pay for my own travel for those. Now, international conferences, the nice thing about working at Auburn is we basically have a bottomless pit for funding for travel. But I, for when I'm doing these projects that are mine that are not conference presentation, that's all out of my pocket. Again, except for the Chinese one. And I don't mind doing it because it's just something I enjoy doing. Um, so that answers sort of part two. Going back to part one, the big lesson for the US people, um, I think it's, well, my, my personal bias would be let's do some more in-school stuff to try to help. My, my whole agenda is how can I make the experiences of Johnny and Billy and, and Mary, etc., and those young people have a more um, higher quality learning, learning experience with the learning underline in the name of physical education, and we need to do that by actually doing research in what's going on in schools and particularly now intervention research. Um, that's not happening in, in, in many places at all. Um, I think because historically, if you go back and look at like the people who are even more senior than I am, all of them started out as teachers. Then they went back university to study that's not a pathway that's very common at all anymore so you don't have people that taught and have a real groundbreaking um, thinking of oh my goodness how can we how can we make this better how can I do better because people aren't going to leave a 50,000 job to be a poor doctoral student for three years anymore um, I'm not sure what the pathway into higher education and Pete is so much in overseas countries but I know that those places and spaces where people are focusing on policy and sociological issues weren't long time in school people like others of us were. So I don't know, that, that doesn't really answer the question very well, it sort of sidetracks it. Um, but I think Exploring what goes on in the name of physical education is really interesting because outside the US, there's some really high quality instruction going on. There's some really quite good 
um, teacher education going on. And, and I, I will defend a lot of the US teacher education, to be honest. I think we do as the job as well as most, particularly in terms of giving our young people access to students in schools. But they certainly, this is true, the quality of the individuals coming in academically overseas typically outstrip the quality of the academic um, biographies of the US kids. So you can do more with them faster. Thank you, Peter. Does anybody else have any other questions? I can just keep going and continue asking Peter all types of questions. Um, so do you think that in your experience is the socio-emotional push, the socio-emotional learning that you we've seen now with Shape America pushing and researchers getting into a lot more, do you feel like that's a huge focus only in the USA context or is this common in other countries as well? Um. There's a bit of it coming out from Spain. Other countries could care less. Uh, again, this is, um, I tend to throw things pretty broadly. Um, and I also think it's a phase in the US. And I think it'll like fade out in time like everything else does. And we don't see as many motivational studies anymore because the people were doing them were retiring. Um, I think the SEL along the physical activity line has come into place because nobody really cares about getting young people skillful typically um, it's something that's an easy fix um, it suits the shape membership because if you just go on p central and watch the discourse about that no one's talking about learning motor skill learning anymore um, even though when the standards and everybody kind of like i'd say hides behind the standards the standards were meant to be hierarchical. And if you talk to Judy Rink, values in, and, and the social emotion content of the standards was never even mentioned in the first iteration standard. It wasn't even on the radar screen. And then because it wasn't measurable, right? I mean, knowledge, fitness, um, motor performance, and then and being physically active were the basis of the beginning standards. And they went in through the second edition. And then only after that were they expanded from five to seven and they've shrunk back to six, um, was the social emotional part brought in. So what you find in like the, the Australian curriculum, for example, they deal with the social emotional aspect, not in terms of trying to improve that disposition in their students as physical education students. They'll use it as a topic of discussion in things, topics like um, sport violence, crowd behavior, um, fairness, where they study it through their Australian rules football unit, for example, they'll, they'll be learning to play Australian rules, but their assignments will be like crowd behaviors and what's accessible and what's so not accessible, what's acceptable at tennis and golf and how different sports have different um, expectations for behavior. So that's the social learning that they're discussing. They're discussing it as an academic content. Um, there's zero grading on whether the students behave appropriately or not. And that's kind of the semi danger of the, the SEL focus is that you'll start grading on students, whether they're, you know, behaving because that's the baseline, even though the, the theorist in social emotional learning put that as something that's, not their agenda. It's more proactive, interpersonal, helpful, supportive, non-discriminatory, you know, proper affective goals of helping others and, and understanding and empathy, etc. at the higher level of the pyramid. But you'll find in practice, and I promise this, that teachers will start to assess at the bottom level of that pyramid. Because how do you measure? Right? And again, people will proselytize over this, but it would be interesting to see any empirical research of researchers in schools going out and doing this work, because a lot of the SEL authors and writers don't do research in schools. So that's going to be an interesting sort of 
futures, if you want to use David Kirk's word of you know, what PE is going to look like. So in our case, physical education, pedagogy, research, futures. Thanks, Peter. Okay, um, Antonio has a question. Antonio, do yes. you Yes, it, uh, thank you, Peter. It was just really interesting. So I may have at least two comments and then, and then a question. And then, so the comment, I think I would really like to highlight one of your suggestions or one of your comments about the active partnerships in between researchers and teachers. And you mentioned that in particular countries, like in Spain, that was very successful. And, and I just would like to highlight that, it, at least in, in, from my experience, those successful partnerships in between researchers and practitioners, most of the time it starts with a really engaged and enthusiasm PE teacher, not just a researcher. So I think from my experience, that successful experience always had a really motivated teacher to do research and stuff. So that's one comment. Yeah, now just really quickly, you noticed that Ireland wasn't included in any of my slides because I really haven't had any experience. And I know that some of the stuff that's happening there is, is outstanding, to be honest. Absolutely. Um, are you finding yeah. that with your teachers in Ireland, that the ones that are the most engaging with your research teams are the a lot of those teachers of the high quality teachers so they're actually at the moment the research arena in ireland at the moment it's like it's like amazing because we have here at least a really three big curricular reforms at the moment coming in junior cycle senior cycle the new exam pe is now an exact some subject here so we have you know there is not always blue skies but you know there's also problems but at the moment the work that is being done here in ireland especially in curriculum and its curriculum studies is is really great and and many many PE teachers as i said before they are doing a really good job and that's the key point just for these successful collaborations and so another another yeah, another comment before the question. I think it's, I would really like to take and highlight again your, your last suggestion or advice to everybody to let's go, to don't be afraid and seek out collaboration. I, I think I, I should really agree and really agree with that because from my perspective, when I contacted Peter for the first time, you know, everything, everything, all the relationship from from my perspective coming to trying asking him to start you know new research and asking him to come to our country spain in that in that moment it really brought like really a, an amazing and many many opportunities of doing really good research so i i think i would really like to highlight the idea of don't be afraid in, in just you know sending email and trying to connect with others all over the world just trying to start this collaboration because most of the times it's going to be like a really amazing experience and so thank you for that and the question i think so you mentioned that in in different countries there are some research topics that are more common in the different countries and just wondering about the why so why do you think in Australia or in England or in China and Russian, there are certain topics that are more, you know, more popular or more relevant? And if do you think that thinking about the sustainability of those topics and, you know, taking or putting those topics from generation to into the new generation of researchers, do you see a continuation of those research topics or do you see an evolution or no so you know I'm, I'm yeah thinking. yeah sure before i answer that i just want to check with erin because she has to go mm -hmm. and it's really close to go ahead and our question and we'll be okay i sent my grad student to start class so i think we're good oh, okay that's fine um well i i think they'll they'll continue because those people draw phd students who do the same things Right? If, if you're a, a, a gender or a feminist 
researcher, you're going to have PhD students who are the next group through that are sort of socialised into that field. So I don't see that changing much. My little hypothesis, again, is in a, in a lot of places, the a number of the people who are not doing in-school research weren't very active as teachers in schools. So there's that lack of familiarity with the whole context of what it's like to be a teacher. And so the, the experiential knowledge of challenges of, you know, how do I do this better? And, you know, like the, the, the day-to-day curriculum operation questions tend to come from them. Um, now, that would be interesting to do a really empirical study on that, but that's my guess. Um, why it happens is um, a little bit of fading. Like, for example, in Australia, I'm the first person to have their PhD in physical education pedagogy in Australia that did their PhD in Australia. Right? All of the others before me did it overseas, and most of them were at a higher state, which was very much a behaviourist in school focus with Darrell Seedentop as the advisor. So the, but they all moved up to administrative positions, deans, um, associate deans and even higher, and then they retired. Now, if they're at universities without an active doctoral program, which they typically were, then it sort of went with them. So you've got other people that are at more active doctoral programs who aren't doing that work are producing students. So I think that's probably what it's like in the UK. I'd say the Irish cohort is probably one of the most diverse in terms of what people are doing between Mary and Anne and yourself and Deborah are at way different levels of who spent time in schools as teachers. And so you've got a nice mix there of all sorts of things. Um, So it's sort of, it's tricky. Again, that would be something that would be really worthwhile investigating and it's and it's got to do to be honest with i think the curriculum studies focus comes from countries where the curriculum of physical education is super highly valued it's a university entrance subject which it is in australia and the uk and now in ireland right students bright students take those courses you know high level performing students take those classes and so because the subject's got some sort of high level of sophistication, then it can be studied in a highly sophisticated way. How you would study high school physical education in the US, I have no clue. Because we probably pretty much know everything about it already. It's not valued. Um, Teachers don't treat it seriously. Young people don't treat it seriously. There's no accountability. in many schools, it, it doesn't even count for their grade point, let alone anything to do with their university entrance. So it's the way schooling structured, I think, has a big factor there. Yeah, almost no curriculum studies in the United States at all. Zero. All right, Peter, one last question. Um, Tao says, how did you get the supports for doing research in PE from schools? Um, locally, taking your students there as part of field experiences, making good relationships with the teachers, working with the teachers on issues that they want help with. So um, going in and doing like example sample lessons, working with them on particular topics, introducing new things for them. So it's all doing stuff for teachers in their schools with them. And that ha- that's your first entry. You take your students in there, you teach, you work with the teachers, you send them good students, you make sure that your good student teachers go to these schools that you want to do some work in. And then you plant the seed about, hey, well, would you be interested in helping out with the project? And so it goes that way and then it burgeons and then you develop it and then you keep going. Like for ex- um, in, in Spain, we had this absolutely brilliant teacher who um, was in a little school with lots of North African kids of 
you know, some of the North Africans were Muslim, some of them weren't. Then you had the regular Spanish, very diverse little school. But he was just super enthusiastic. So we went and did stuff with him. His first project he did, and we were on site every day that he collected data, supporting him, helping him. And then he's just grown into all sorts of really fabulous sort of stuff. So it's the relationships part. The relationships start with you not being the researcher, but you being the teacher educator, taking your students in, being professional, showing an interest in them, in their school, in their world, and helping them out. And, you know, I mean, you obviously seek out teachers who are good. Right? You're not going to get any buy-in from a teacher who's a ball roller, but from good teachers you are. And so that's, that's where you get to entry first. Once you've got entry, then you can plant the seeds and you can do projects and then from there it just spirals. That's been my history anyway. And I don't think that would be any different anywhere. For example, okay. Just real quick, I did one study in Australia where I went to a school where the University of Queensland had a good relationship with. And so I tagged on their coattails. Go, Senlin. Okay, Peter, uh, thank you so much for the uh, enlightening webinar. Uh, it is very informative and uh, we all learned a great deal from you. Uh, thank you for your time. And also want to thank uh, a few people, particularly want to thank uh, Aaron for uh, hosting the webinar today and she has done a tremendous amount of work uh, to make this happen. And uh, also definitely want to thank everybody for participating in this webinar, whether you uh, participating live today or you want to watch this later. Uh, I'm sure that uh, our audience have more questions to come, uh, but for the sake of time, we're gonna, we have to conclude the webinar now. Uh, so um, you're welcome to send uh, your additional questions to uh, Dr. Hasty uh, after the webinar. Uh, and I do have a couple of reminders for our members. And lastly, is, uh, please renew and join our uh, SIG membership. And this year we are, uh, we are healthy, but uh, we need uh, more people um, to participate in our um, you know, community and help our organization uh, grow stronger, okay? So uh, lastly, just uh, please stay tuned to our other communication channels. We have uh, um, a number of different channels now, um, you know, in addition to the traditional uh, emails, but we also have uh, Twitter accounts and all that. Uh, so with that, um, we'll conclude the webinar today. Thank you for your participation and uh, I'll see you later.